Hi, I'm Bob. And I'm Cheryl. Welcome to Digging Deeper, brought to you by California Unearthed. And in this episode, we're going to dive back into the school system of California. Okay. If you remember, we did the Preston Castle episode. Right, which was very interesting. Well, that was full of atrocities that the California government did to these poor boys at that uh, industrial school. Well, this one is not going to be any better. Okay. This may even be worse than that. I don't know how it could be worse, but I'm sure it could. Oh yeah, it, it gets worse. How I came up with this subject was I was actually doing some research on how many schools in California have been built on top of a cemetery. Oh, that's interesting. I know, it's a weird thing to think about, but there's actually a few of them that have been. There's one in Sacramento, and there's actually one in downtown Los Angeles that we talked about before, the old Catholic cemetery the Cavalry Cemetery in Los Angeles where the Yorba family was buried before they were moved to the Yorba Cemetery. Okay. And if you remember that one, yes. that was right close to Dodger Stadium. And actually, the Jewish Cemetery is in the parking lot of Dodger Stadium. Wow. The Jewish Cemetery was right next to the Catholic Cemetery there. And there's a high school built on the old Cavalry Cemetery. Okay. And like I said, there's one in Sacramento as well. The old cemetery there in Sacramento before the old Sacramento City Cemetery was created in 1849. There was another one that was close to Sutter's Fort that was abandoned and now has a high school on top of that old cemetery. Oh, I didn't know that. And not all the bodies were removed from there either. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's how I came up with this subject matter while researching that. This one came up. Have you heard about the old Native American boarding schools. I've heard of them. I don't know too much information about them, but I have heard what I have heard. It was not good. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to talk about one in particular boarding school here in California. There was actually 10 Native American boarding schools here in California at one time. Wow. And we're going to talk about one of them. Okay. And you're probably wondering, well, what's that have to do with cemeteries and schools? Well, unfortunately, a lot of these Native American boarding schools had cemeteries attached to them. Of course. And the one we're going to talk about today is in Riverside County. Mm-hmm. And that has a cemetery attached. to it. Okay. Let's start off with the history of boarding schools in general, or the Native American boarding schools in general. The foundation for the Native school system was laid out when the U.S. Congress passed the Civilization Fund Act of 1819. The law provided funding to the education of Native children with the goal of introducing among them the habits and acts of civilization. And most of the funds went to religious organizations such as the Catholic Church as they were the ones that were already trying to convert the natives to Christianity. And most of these happened on the reservation that the federal government was already putting the natives on after, as we know, stealing their land. So they were building the boarding schools on the reservation? Yes. Okay. And we're going to get to that. They weren't, they didn't start off as boarding schools in the beginning. When the religious organizations were starting off, they were starting off as day schools. And you know the day school is, correct? Yes. Okay. So for those of you that don't know, a day school is basically where the children go to school during the day and then return home at night and then go back the next day. It's just like a regular school. Right. Just a regular school. Right. And then later on, the boarding schools came into play where the federal government and the religious organizations were realizing that these children children, even though they were coming to school, they were then going home and still receiving the education of their native families and learning their native ways, which they were trying to suppress. Correct. Yes. And like I said, all of this was done on the reservations. And that's an important thing to remember because that's going to come up again here very, very shortly. So it wasn't just the Catholic Church that was trying to convert the native people. You also had the Quakers the Protestants, the Baptists. There was 14 other religious organizations that were also trying to convert the natives into the Christian religion. Right. 
And we've seen this before as the Spanish came in to California and they obviously they used the natives as slave labor and they too were trying to convert the natives into the Catholic religion. Right. So this wasn't the first time that this has been done to the natives. The Spanish did it back in the 1700s. This was 1819 up until 1870. Okay. So in 1870, they decided that they were going to start funding the native schools off the reservation. Okay. They realized that they needed to take these children and pull them away from their culture to be able to get them to... To modernize them. Right. They're trying to get them to assimilate to the modern culture and trying to get them to forget about their culture. They're trying to erase the native culture is what they're doing. Around 1870, Congress is now going to fund the native boarding schools outside of the reservation. Hmm. But there are still some that are going on on the reservation. We're going to talk about a few here in California that happened before 1891 that were on reservations. And then the school that we're going to talk about is going to be the very first off-reservation native school in California, and then the first one in Southern California. And that happens in 1891. But there were native boarding schools here in California before that. They just weren't off-reservation. So Native American children were forced to attend off-reservation, federally ran boarding schools across the country, where their native traditions, language, dress, spiritual beliefs, foods, and family life were considered uncivilized. So missionaries and government officials unwelcomely interfered and opened these boarding schools on and off reservation, where most of these native children who went to these boarding schools were forcefully taken from their homes and families, where the parents didn't know where they were sent, nor did they know if they'd ever see their children again. That's just mind-boggling. I mean, how... It it makes me so angry, because how in the hell could they have just come in and taken these children legally? I mean, it makes no sense, because Lord knows knows the white man is the supreme being, I mean, that just pisses me off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's like, how the hell did they have that right? And why did they feel that they had that right to take these children away from their parents? Because what? Because the natives weren't, quote unquote, civilized. I'm sorry, but the natives were more civilized than the white man. Just saying. Fight me. (laughs) I mean... Seriously. No, I I agree. I agree. But the answer to your question is is exactly that, is the federal government and the, as you say, the white man saw the natives as uncivilized because they practiced different ways of life than what the modern way of life was. And so they set up these schools to be able to civilize these natives. And we're going to talk about a gentleman here in a few minutes that started all of this, he started the very first off-reservation boarding school, and we're going to talk about him here in a minute, but uh, let me continue on with what I'm talking about here, and then we'll get on to that. That's going to explain a little bit more on what you just asked. So some of these children were as young as four years old. They ranged anywhere from 4 to 20. Dang. And there's actually going to be a couple of quotes I'm going to talk about here in a few minutes that talk about the age of these children and how they were taken from their homes. And so the children were forced to abandon their native traditional cultures to assimilate into the modern-day American culture. And you got to remember, at this time, not all 50 states were established right. in this country. That's true, yeah. There's still territory. I believe Arizona and New Mexico were still territories. And so they're still just taking land from these people and then throwing these kids in these boarding schools to teach them the modern American culture. My hands are in air quotes right now for those of you that can't see. And if I'm not mistaken, I remember reading or seeing that when when the children were taken to the schools, I mean, they immediately cut their hair, made them dress in the 70s 
civilized Western clothing because their hair was very sacred to them. It's funny you say that because I was just, that was going to be my next statement was that the children were forced to cut their hair, wear uniforms, speak English, and convert to Christianity, partake in U.S. citizenship training, and change their names. Names. Yeah, that was another thing. They made them change their names. But how can you convert someone into Christianity when they don't understand it? If if you want to be a Christian, you learn about it, and if that's what you believe, then you become Christian. How can they make these children convert? Because if you refuse to do any of that, it was met with discipline, harsh discipline, as in starvation, loss of privileges, physical, mental, sexual, and spiritual abuse. So if you abuse somebody enough, you'll make them believe whatever you want them to believe. And for children, they're going after the young of the culture. So if you're going to try to erase somebody's culture, the ones you want to go after are going to be the children because the elders are set in their ways. Right. The children are where it's at. You want to attack them and get them to do what you want them to do and forget about their culture. And so obviously that didn't work because we now have a native population that still strive on native education. Mm -hmm. Luckily, we have that now. We're going to talk more about that as well here in a little bit. And the school that we're going to talk about is very, very proud of what they're doing now to educate on native traditions and not just the native people, but also the general public as well and educating them on the native ways as well. And we're going to talk about that, like I said, here in a little bit too. Now, like I said, I just talked about the ramifications of not changing your name, not changing your culture, not changing the Christianity was the abuse. And the abuse was so bad, so much so that these schools, like I said earlier, had cemeteries attached to them. These cemeteries held the remains of children who passed on in the care of the federal government and the care of these people who were supposed to be teaching them a better way. And a lot of these children, they say, passed from illnesses, which which yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Because if you look back when the Spaniards came over to South America and Mexico, before it was Mexico, obviously, and here in the States, they wiped out the native population from diseases right. that they brought over. So once again, that makes sense. Right. But to think that some of those children that lay in the cemetery were not victims of abuse at the hands of the people who ran the school. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Right, right. So a lot of these children, they say died of illnesses. More than likely, they did die of illnesses, but they also died from abuse at the hands of the administrators of these boarding schools. So at the same time, laws mandated that Native American children must attend these boarding schools. Sorry, but it's just so asinine. I just, I'm sorry. It just, it just really rubs me the wrong way. I just... It's heartbreaking, it's maddening, it's stupid. Well, although there were Christian native schools, like I said, there were day schools and then boarding schools, the first federally funded off-reservation native boarding school was called Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. It was founded in 1879 by an army lieutenant, Richard Henry Pratt, who believed education was the way to civilize civilize the native people. And at one time, infamously, in a 1892 speech, you're going to love this one, said, and I'm quoting, kill the Indian in him and save the man. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And before closing in 1918, due to World War I, when the land that the school sat on was given back to the Department of Defense, because when that school was built in 1879, that land was gifted from the Department of Defense because it was just an abandoned piece of land. Then when World War I hit, they needed that land again, and so the school had then closed at that point. Okay. Carlisle saw an attendance record of over 10,000 Native children from 140 different tribes in 39 years. Man. 
Now, the Carlisle School, while doing the research for this, I ran into a few stories where there were children taken from their homes in Alaska and sent to Carlisle. Really? 4,000 miles away. Jeez. And this one family, it was a podcast I was listening to, and the woman was working on her doctorate degree, and she was talking about this was her aunt, her great aunt, and they didn't even know that this great aunt existed until she started working on her doctorate degree and they found her name in the Carlisle School because she's buried in the cemetery there in Carlisle. Oh, wow. That name came up and she was able to pull records and find out that this was her aunt that had disappeared from the Alaskan religious school that she was sent to. Huh. So they had pulled the children from the tribe, took them to a religious school, and then considered them abandoned and without parents. So then they sent these two girls to Carlisle School in Pennsylvania, where they both passed away. It was kind of a heartbreaking podcast to listen to. Now, I also read with Lieutenant Pratt, he had good intentions. Even though that was an a-hole thing to say, right? his intentions were, were good. He was trying to do is what he felt like, and this is going to sound horrible as well, he felt like the Native people were equal to the Europeans. They just need to be civilized and taught how to act like the Europeans. Okay. Where he was a racist piece of garbage saw that the native people were better than the African Americans. They just needed to be educated. And that was his big thing was education. If we could educate them, they'll be okay. Then they can take their education back to the tribes and educate their tribe members. Once again, his intentions... Questionable. Questionable. (laughs) His actions, not so much. Right. (laughs) And so here's where I have a few quotes I want to give you. So this comes from California Assemblyman James Ramos, who is from San Bernardino. And this is right about the area that we're going to talk about this school okay. here in a little bit. He states, and this is exact quotes that we're talking about here, they were then trying to change their language. They were forbidden to speak their language. They were forbidden to speak anything Indian, but they didn't stop remembering, right? They came back to the reservation and kept teaching those things. So basically what he was saying was that the native children didn't forget where they came from. They came back to the reservation and kept teaching the Indian ways. They didn't forget their native customs. They went back and kept teaching their native native customs. His grandmother attended St. Boniface in Banning, California. That was another Indian school that we're going to talk about here in a minute, Hmm. which was a Catholic school. Okay. So that one doesn't count as a off-reservation school, I don't believe. I think that was one of the ones that was started before the off-reservation boarding schools. Uh, We'll find out here in a minute. I have a list of them we're going to go through. So historians believe students attending the boarding schools were beaten, starved, and abused if they spoke their native language. So there's a museum at the school that we're going to talk about, and the assistant coordinator to that museum, Amanda Wixon, also had a few things to say that I want to talk about. She states, my grandmother, like many others, was raised to believe that being an Indian was a dirty thing and something that shouldn't be talked about ever. So they're teaching these children that being Native American is a dirty thing and you don't talk about it. Right. Well, just like my mom told me that her grandmother, my great-grandmother, Ida, was ashamed of being Indian. Because that's probably what she was taught. That's probably what she was taught. When my mom told me that, even to this day, it just makes me so sad that she felt that way. It had to feel that way because of her heritage. And she's about that age where these boarding schools were Mm -hmm. in in place. She probably went to one of those. Maybe. She was in San Diego, so she may have gone to the one that we're going to talk about, or she may have gone to the one in San Diego. Either one. Probably the one in San Diego. Amanda Wixon also says, I've heard stories of sometimes just going to a village and seeing children just wandering around and saying, they're being unsupervised, we'll take them. So they're just going to these villages and seeing children playing around, being unsupervised, and deciding, well, they have no parental supervision, we'll take them to this school. That's what kids did in villages. They kind of ran amok while the men were hunting, the women were gathering, 
green or, you know, it's like that's just how it was. According to these people that they see these children running around unsupervised, well, take them and put them to work and teach them not to be Native Americans. This goes back to what I just said about these children being taken that were just running around on the streets mm-hmm. of the village or just running around in the village. I've heard stories of rations being withheld if they didn't send their children. Wow. So, so if you don't give us our, your children, we're going to starve you. Right. So if they didn't just take the children, then they were forcing the parents to give the children up. And like I said earlier, a lot of these parents never knew where these where these children ended up or if they'd ever see them again. Now that's being a good Christian, don't you think? So once students arrived at the schools, they were put to work. Not just education, they were put to work. Academics only made up two hours of the day, a very long day. Wow, just two hours. Okay. They were getting up at 5 a.m. They worked until 10 p.m. And that's two hours of education in that time period. Wow. So 5 a.m. to 10. And they were as young as four. Wixon also states, and then there were also the very highly controversial outing program. Now, what the outing program was, they sent these young girls and boys out into the community to work for white Christian families, and they would do domestic work and field work. So, obviously, the girls would be doing the domestic work, and the boys would be doing field work or garden work for a very low wage. Of course. If any wage at all. Right. And that was the outing program. And that was very, like I said, controversial because it's basically child trafficking, if you think about it. Yeah. It's really sad. And it wasn't just here in California they were doing that. They were doing that all over the country. So still quoting Wixon, she did an interview for CBS News at one point. So this is where I'm getting a lot of that. Okay. And there's actually a website that has a lot of this on there. This is really great information. Like I said, she is the assistant curator for the museum that we're going to be talking about here in a few. But she also states that scholars estimate that by 1926, 83% of all Native American children attended the boarding schools. It's important to note not all children had harsh treatment or experiences. Some students were able to leverage their own experiences and some of them went back to the reservation to create a better life for themselves and their families Uh in terms of economic, agricultural, and all sorts of stuff. And like I said, go back to the reservation and their communities and make life for themselves and maybe even sometimes improve the lives of their families. So going back to James Ramos, he also states that those who fought back, those that wanted to retain their language, they were beaten. There are atrocities that happened. We think that there was beatings that took place so severe that they ended up in the cemeteries with no explanation to the families. Jeez. Okay, but you'll put yourself being a boy of 10 to 12, and you've just been ripped away from your family, put into a strange school, your hair cut, you're told that you can't speak your native language, you have to accept God, you know, as your religion. I mean, you know that some of them were very angry, and that's why they acted out. I mean, I can't blame them. Can you? No, of course not. I mean, yeah, not at all. I'd fight. Yeah, I I think I would fight too. I would, yeah. You know, they're going to obviously they beat you and abused you and to the point where some of these kids weren't going to say no and end up dying from it. Right. And we're going to talk about and I'll go ahead and say it. It's called the Sherman Institute in, or the Sherman Indian School. It's also the Sherman Institute and that is in Riverside, California and the cemetery that they have on property has 65 native children buried in it. Wow. Each May, on May 3rd of each year now, is called Indian Flower Day. And the high school students from the Sherman High School is still a school. It's still a Native American school, but it is now a much better place. It teaches the Native traditions instead of not teaching them. They do teach them now mm-hmm. at the high school. It's one of only four schools that remain in the country. It is turned around 180 degrees. So now those students from 
from the high school and the local Boy Scouts on May 3rd of every year now on Indian Flower Day go out to the cemetery, they pull weeds, they clean up, and they put flowers on every single grave at the cemetery. So it is the responsibility now of the students of the high school and of the local Boy Scouts to care for the cemetery now. That's good. Yeah. My thing is, I believe, like they did at Preston Castle, why would you have a cemetery on the grounds of the school? Mm -hmm. My thought is intimidation. Yeah. You don't do it, you're told, that's where you're going to end up. Yeah. That's what I I think. I mean, like I said, I mean, I'm sure that there are a few of illness, sickness, things of that nature, but yeah. Right. And then they just hide them as illnesses. Right. And the sad thing is, is they took these children from their homes and their families and they died in their care, but they can't give them back to the family to bury them in the ways of their traditions. Right. Because, what well, it's too far, but it wasn't too far for you to take them in the first place. That's true. You can at least give them back to the family. Right. That's my my thought. Oh, I, I 100% agree on that. So like I said, today there's only four federally ran Native American boarding schools in the states. And one of them is the Sherman High School, like I said, that we're going to talk about in Riverside. Although it has undergone a radical transformation, as I said, mm-hmm. 180 degrees from what it used to be. It was created to suppress and erase the Native culture. And now it is there to embrace the native culture. Mm-hmm. I do remember when I was in elementary school at Payton Elementary School in Vacaville that because since I was part Indian, there were a few other kids there that were also part Native American. And we were sent off to like another location. As, it was like Indian class. And I can't remember if it was once a week or once a month, but we would all get together. We'd get on a bus. We'd go somewhere. They would teach, you know, about different tribes. We would make crafts. Indian crafts and things like that. I never really questioned it. I thought it was cool because it got me out of class. <laughs> but, you know, I never kind of really put two and two as to why, but maybe that was something that maybe the schools had to do. I don't know. But yeah, why did know. Peyton embrace this? That, that's an interesting question. Right. My buddy Tony, you know Tony, uh, he's talked about this before. He's always told me that his grandmother was sent to one of these schools when she was young. Really? Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. James Ramos brings up a good point. And this is going to sound really stereotypical. And these words are not coming from me. These words are coming from James, who is a Native American himself. So these words are not coming from a white man or they're not coming from me. I'm doing this as a direct quote from him. Okay. So don't come after me in the comments. (laughs) Even today in Indian country, we have the highest alcoholism rates, the highest suicide rates, and the highest areas of lack of education. I think it all comes back to the historical trauma that never came forward to say that this did truly happen to our people. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. Uh, so if you think about the trauma that people went through and a lot of people, even people today who went through childhood trauma who can't deal with it or don't have somebody to talk to, they're going to turn to alcohol or drugs or, mm-hmm. you know, who knows, you know, suicide. Yeah. And so those things happen not only to the Native people, but to a lot of us if we can't deal with the trauma that has happened to us. Right. So his comment makes a lot of sense. In May 2022, there was a report that came out that revealed between 1819 and 1969, the U.S. operated or supported 408 boarding schools in 37 states. Wow. 14 different religious organizations, like I was saying earlier. Mm -hmm. The top five states with the most boarding schools, guess at least the first one. I think California. Nope. Um, Not even on that. Not even the top five. I really don't know. This is going to make sense once I tell you. Oklahoma. Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. I was thinking Oklahoma, Kentucky, those states. (laughs) Oklahoma, Arizona, Alaska, New Mexico, and South Dakota. Oh, okay, yeah. Makes a lot of sense now, huh? Yes. So out of those 408, 10 of them are in California. So California is not even close to the top five. South Dakota, which is number five, had 25 schools in it. California had 10. Wow. 
So the 10 schools that California had were Fort Bidwell, and you're probably, where's Fort Bidwell? Is that Chico? No, Fort Bidwell was actually in Modoc County. Okay. Yeah. And it was an old military fort mm-hmm. that was transformed into a Native American boarding school. And that was started in 1898 and ran until 1931. There was Fort Yuma in Yuma, California. Yuma, Arizona is right on the border of the California-Arizona line. And once again, a fort, old military base turned into a boarding school. And that was on, I believe, reservation land or given to the local natives at one point. And that was started in 1884 and continued until 1900. So that was one of them that was on reservation. Okay. Because that land was given to the natives. Greensville in Greensville, California. That started in 1897 up until 1922. Hoopa Valley. That makes sense. Which we know. Mm -hmm. That's up here in Northern California. That was started in 1896 up until 1916. Paris, which we're going to talk about, started in 1891 until 1904. Round Valley, which is in Modesto County, started in 1907, a little bit later, Mm -hmm. up until 1924. Sherman Industrial, which we're going to talk about, started in 1901 until 1946. Hmm. And you're probably thinking, 1946, I thought you said it was still going. It is still going. We're going to talk about a timeline of the school. In 1946 is where the native boarding school kind of ends for California natives. Okay. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. Then there's St. Anthony's industrial school that was the one in san diego that was started in 1886 and ended in 1907 then there's saint boniface indian school that started in 1890 until 1952 and that's the one in banning okay that's the town right before beaumont okay yeah and hopefully i'm going to say this one correctly saint turbulus industrial school and that is in kelseyville and i couldn't find dates for that one but that one's another catholic boarding school so i believe there's what one two three four maybe half of these are catholic boarding schools and that makes sense for california yeah with the spanish influence so this is where there's a little bit of light in this story so in june 2021 deb hilland and hopefully i'm saying that name correctly the u.s secretary of the interior and the first indigenous cabinet secretary in the u.s announced the federal indian boarding school initiative the purpose of the initiative is to investigate the loss of human life and lasting consequences of the federal indian boarding school system in the united states So basically, she's going to investigate through ground-penetrating radar in these cemeteries on how these children died. Okay. And all this came from something apparently that happened up in Canada with the Native people up there, which made her come up with this idea to start investigating the atrocities that happened at these Indian boarding schools. So let's get into the Sherman Institute. That was one of the off-reservation Native American boarding schools that were ran by the federal government from the late 1800s up until the 1970s. From 1901 to 1946, the Sherman Indian School operated on a 110-acre farm in the Home Gardens area of Riverside County, California. Specifically, the property boundary was Magnolia Avenue and McLinley Street past Lincoln Avenue. At this location, students lived in two dormitory houses on the farm. They studied farm skills and basic education it was not only a training ground but it was a source of food for the school it was a self-sustaining farm and once again that relates back to preston castle was also a self-sustaining farm as well Right. And I'm not trying to compare this to Preston Castle. There's two different animals. Right. But there's a lot of similarities, too. The Sherman Indian School also contained a reminder of the past in the form of Sherman Indian School Cemetery established in 1901 to 1955, which holds 65 children who passed away from illness at the Sherman Institute School. first burial was in 1901. The last burial was in 1955, and I went through the list of burials on Find a Grave. Mm-hmm. I was surprised to see four of those children were under the age of one. 
One of them was in 1923. The other three happened for some reason in 1933, and one of them was only about three days old. So I'm assuming that some of these girls became pregnant while at the boarding school, but I don't know for sure. But very, very sad. Oh, jeez. I was bothered by that when I saw that. I was like, what the... Yeah. And like I said, today on May 3rd of each year, the Indian Flower Day takes place where the high school students and local Boy Scouts lay flowers on all the graves and clean up the cemetery. It all started in 1890. Mr. Horatio Rust was instructed by the Commissioner of Indian Affairs to find a suitable site in Southern California for an Indian school. In 1892, the first off-reservation Indian Indian boarding school in California and in Southern California was established in Paris, California. The Paris Indian School was established under the direction of Mr. M.S. Savage. The enrollment was made up of Southern California native children from Tule River Agency to San Diego County. Students ranged in ages from five years old up to 20. It was an 80-acre site in Paris, California at the corner of where today is Paris Boulevard and Morgan Street. The main subjects taught were agriculture and domestic science. Hmm. You would think the main subjects taught were going to be reading, writing, and arithmetic. Right, exactly. But no, it was agriculture and domestic studies. Oh, domestic science. Yeah. So Paris, California. Do you know where that's at? No. Uh, Paris is down where Kim lives. Okay. Near Temecula. Okay. It's not right close to Temecula, but I mean, it's... Right. For places that you know... Exactly, yeah. (laughs) It's closer to Temecula than anywhere else that I think that you know. Okay. But it's just north east of Temecula area. Sorry, and I don't mean to to interrupt, but I just kind of had something just came into mind is I had heard a story, and now I'm almost thinking that maybe Modesta may have been in one of these schools because I heard a story that I didn't know if it was Gertrude or or Modesta, but one of them had gone into a Catholic school and the nuns used to, well, basically, I don't want to say beat, but something about smashing the ruler on their hands. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, that just came to mind. So now I'm really curious because Modesta would have been in that time. More than likely, she probably went to St. Anthony's in San Diego. So that would be really interesting because, yeah, I, like I said, it just, for some reason, it just came to me. It's just like I remember hearing a story of a grandmother in a Catholic school being beaten by nuns or mistreated by nuns. So that would, that would make sense. It wouldn't be Paris because Paris wasn't a Catholic school boarding school and it wouldn't be Sherman because that wasn't a Catholic school. Right. The only Catholic schools would have been St. Anthony's in San Diego or St. Boniface in Banning. Interesting. That's something I'd like to look into. She could have been to either one, but more than likely it was the one in San Diego. That's what I'm thinking too, because she was there. Right. Yeah, exactly. Something for us to look into for sure. In 1897, Superintendent Hanwood Hall sought a better location due to an inadequate water supply in Paris. Oh, okay. So Mr. Hall appealed to James Schoolcraft Sherman. Interesting middle name, Schoolcraft. Mm -hmm. Right. Sherman, who was the chairman of Indian Affairs in the U.S. House of Representatives and later became the 27th U.S. Vice President under William Taft. He appealed to him for funds to build a school in the Riverside area. So on May 31st, 1900, Congress authorized $75,000 for the construction of Sherman Institute in the city of Riverside on the corner of Magnolia. Magnolia and Jackson Street. On July 19, 1901, the cornerstone was laid for the new building, which would be the administration building of Sherman Institute. School was named for Mr. Sherman, who was responsible for making this all happen. Nine buildings were constructed and officially opened in May of 1902. In the fall of 1902, eight grades were in operation. Agriculture industrial art programs 
were added later to the school's curriculum. As far as the Paris school goes, that remained open until December of 1904, when the remaining students were sent over to Riverside to the Sherman School. So that started in 1902, but the first burial in the cemetery is 1901. Huh, interesting. That is interesting. So were they maybe having these kids help build? I don't know, maybe. And there may have been an accident? Yeah, who knows? So for those of you who are interested, I'm getting all of this information that I'm talking about the Sherman School from the Sherman Museum website. I will put a link to that in the show notes. It is a very interesting website and really cool stories, really cool information. So all this information that I'm giving to you about the Sherman School is coming from that website. So by 1908, there was 550 students enrolled. Wow. Using 34 buildings now. So 1908 in, what, in six years, it went from nine buildings to 34. Jeez. A junior high school program was in effect and was comprised of academic subjects and industrial training such as carpentry, painting, cabinet making, blacksmithing, wagon making, because you got to remember the cars didn't exist yet, mm-hmm. horseshoeing, husbandry, tailoring, agricultural, home economics, which is domestic, and home nursing. The outing system, which we talked about, was inaugurated at this time. And like I said before, the outing system is where the children went out into the community of the white Christians and basically did domestic and farming work for little, if any, pay. Human trafficking. Yep. As far as the education in the school, this comes right back from the Sherman Museum website. In 1909, 43 different tribes showed up on school rules, with natives not only coming from California, but from the Pacific Northwest, the Southwest, and the Great Plains. Education was limited to grades 1 to 8 at that time. Later in 1916, pupils were enrolled in grades 1 to 10. By 1926, the school offered a complete elementary and high school curriculum, as well as a course in cosmetology. So going back to the Preston Castle, it seems like the Native American boarding schools had a better curriculum when it came to the skilled labor stuff. Right. I was thinking that same thing when you were reading off, you know, what the school offered. I was like, wow, that's quite a lot. Well, like I said, I'm not trying to compare the two, but it's kind of hard not to when Preston Castle is somewhat like these boarding schools. Mm -hmm. The enrollment had reached 1,000 students. An enrollment of 1,250 56 was recorded in 1930, and in 1932, Sherman became an accredited high school. During the Great Depression years, from 1930 to 1936, the enrollment decreased. California natives began to integrate into the public school system. In 1946, and this is where I was saying the school was operated from 1901 to 1946. Mm -hmm. In 1946, a desperate need for education among the Navajo guaranteed the continuance of Sherman as an educational institution. October 1946 marked the opening of the special program to 350 Navajo young people aged 12 to 20 who had never experienced a formal education. By 1948, the regular elementary and high school programs were discontinued. The special program was in operation for more than 15 years. Each year, the school made gradual changes to meet the need of students. During this time, no California natives were in attendance of the school. Hmm. So basically, in 1946, it stopped becoming an elementary and high school. Right. It has a special program just for the Navajo natives. Huh. So that's where I was saying that's where the school ends mm-hmm. there. But the school doesn't really end. It's still teaching. It's just not teaching California natives anymore. Right. In the fall of 1963, the 9th and 10th grades were revived. Sherman reopened enrollment to other tribes, including California natives. The school again moved into the direction of a high school program, adding a grade each year until the school began graduating classes 
passes in 1966. In 1967, eight buildings were deemed not able to withstand a major earthquake. One of the last buildings to be raised were the old school buildings in 1970. The old cornerstone from the building and its contents were saved and placed into the Sherman Museum, which is the old administrative building, the last of the original buildings. In 1971, Sherman was reaccredited as a high school and became known as Sherman Indian High School, which is still called today. Huh. So I spoke of the Sherman Museum, and I really want to go there. I would like to as well. It sounds really, really interesting. And so I want to talk a little bit about the museum itself. Like I was just reading, it is housed in the administrative building, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's Spanish architecture, if I remember correctly. So the museum itself houses records from the school. Like we said, all the contents from the school were sent over to the museum from early day to the present. Over 2,000 thousand objects and artifacts of American Indian origin are housed there. Okay. These items were acquired from the Friends of the School and the Museum. In 1974, the Sherman Indian Museum was designated as a Riverside Cultural Heritage Landmark. It was entered into the National Register of Historic Places in 1980. At present day, Sherman the School hosts an average of three to 500 students who come from reservations spanning the United States. Any student who is a tribal member of a federally accredited tribe with at least one-fourth blood quantum may apply to the school. The school is funded entirely by the United States Department of the Interior, Bureau of Indian Affairs, and Bureau of Indian Education. Attendance is free of charge. Oh, wow. It better be. Yeah. The reasoning behind leaving home and coming to Sherman vary. Some students attend Sherman High School because they live too far away from school back to home to attend daily. Others attend Sherman High School because they had negative experiences experiences attending non-native schools and more than a few attend Sherman High School simply due to the fact that being a family tradition and then the fact that now the Sherman School is on the right path yeah and not abusing students anymore right So here's a little bit about the museum itself. The Sherman Museum is housed, like I said, in the Sherman Indian High School's administration building. The current school's only original architectural building that remains. The small one-story Spanish-style building, so it is Mm Spanish-style, still stands as it did 100 years ago, although the rest of the school was demolished and rebuilt to meet earthquake standards during the 1970s. Mm. And we kind of talked about that a little bit. Two wood-burning stoves once heated this structure of wood and stucco in 1927. A small furnace was installed in the basement under the main part of the building, later replaced by a gas furnace, no longer in use. Sherman began to grow, needing to enlarge the administrative offices in 1933, again in 1938, and once again in 1960. This is the part I found very, very interesting, Cheryl. I've never heard this before. Wait until you hear this. A post office branch was established on campus. Hmm. And in 1938, rooms were added for this purpose. Wow. The post office. The post office. That's incredible. It remained in operation until Indian Day, September 1970, when the museum was officially opened in its place. Huh, interesting. That's cool. I've never heard about that before. That's pretty interesting. A post office at the school. Now, here's a list of fun facts, and it's kind of cool. I was going to integrate this into the story I was telling you, but I thought it'd be kind of neat just to read off these fun facts. Well, I was going to have Cheryl read off this list for you guys, but unfortunately, when I turned the laptop over for her to be able to read it, I accidentally hit something and we have lost the last four or five minutes of this podcast, unfortunately. So I'm going to go ahead and read off this list to you and do the sign off and Cheryl will be with me again on the next episode. So as far as this list goes, the Sherman Institute colors were 
royal purple and gold and they were chosen at the paris school in 1900 and it's funny as i've never heard of royal purple that one's new to me i've heard of royal blue obviously but royal purple that's really interesting a lone student Renato Lachuza mission was the first student to enroll several days prior to July 18, 1902, when a contingent from Sacatone, Arizona enrolled. Mr. Lachuza also constituted a class of one graduating from 8th grade in 1903. Scroungers. The first school equipment in 1902 included scrounged dry goods boxes, which served as desks and dining room seats. Some students stood for their meals. On September 1st, 1902, school opened for the first time with a full complement of students. March 3rd, 1903 marked the official opening. 1904, Sherman graduated its first class. No funds were available to purchase diplomas, though. 1905, the first meeting of returned students took place. In 1906, the purple and gold became Sherman's official school song. In 1907, the Alumni Association was organized. In 1916, there were four Indians in Congress, two each in the House of Representatives and the Senate. 1917, on April 18th, the Sherman Institute was now under martial law from 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. every day. Guard duty was standard routine. You gotta remember, that's during World War I. In 1918, Richard Barrington Washow was acting bandmaster. He was an outstanding baritone player composer, and lumber mill owner. He was once honored by the state of Nevada. November 1st, 1919, Frank Martin, Fernando Lyons, Alexander Palmer, and Paggy McGee became too familiar with Poison Oak near the Santa Ana River. March 20th of 1920, the SS California 28-member band played in Riverside. Nine of the players were former Sherman Institute bandmen. If you heard the Preston Castle podcast, that boarding school also had a band. So we have both the Preston Castle boarding school with a band and then the Native American boarding schools in Southern California, at least Sherman Institute had a band as well. The Sherman Indian Museum has done a lot of work to compile stories and experiences of Southern California Native families And you can experience all that hard work in person at the museum and check out their website before you go. I will put a link in the show notes to the website. We hope that you found this episode interesting and informative and has driven you to possibly do your own research and look more into the subject matter. We are just scratching the surface here on this podcast. There's a ton more information out there via websites, YouTube videos, podcast and there's some amazing first-hand accounts of people who attended these schools telling their stories on either youtube or through podcasts so definitely go check out some more of this information so for us today that'll do it thank you for joining us on digging deeper brought to you by california unearthed and we will see you guys on the next episode and we hope that you have a very merry christmas (laughs) 